This is the Robert Affalter Show, and I am Robert Affalter. And let's get started on the morning drive again this morning. It's about 7.43, and I'm just getting going on my way from Blaine back into Bellingham. On September the 8th, tomorrow's my wife's birthday. So I may not be making the morning drive. I'm going to take the day off and spend it with my wife. First time she's been off on her birthday in a long time. She's a retired teacher now. <laughs> she gets to have her birthday off. And since I am an entrepreneur, I can schedule my time. And I decided to take the day off and spend it with her. So anyway, let's talk about accurate thinking today. I just responded to a friend of mine yesterday. He posted something on Facebook and he was just reposting something that he thought was worth passing along and it was politically involved. Supported his political viewpoint and it had several items listed as facts that he thought opposed the other party and all I did rather than argue with him now some there had been several comments already, either supporting or disagreeing with the post. However, all I did was post links showing that each of the things that he had posted as facts were not facts. Each of them was wrong. Each of his supposed facts supporting his conclusion was wrong. Now, some of them weren't wrong in a way that materially damaged his conclusion. But some of them were. Some of them didn't support it at all. <laughs> so when you get down to things like which party's in power and and who can be blamed for certain things, well, it's probably a good idea to look it up and make sure you know which party really is in power <laughs> and that your statistics actually support your conclusion. And what I find is so often our statistics don't support our conclusion and we don't really look at it. We just accept what somebody tells us and start making an argument against them without even challenging the facts that support the conclusion. So the first thing we gotta do is make sure we're solid on our facts. You can't come up with any conclusion if you haven't really looked at the data. Yesterday my wife had been talking with our son who lives in Colorado in Boulder and he had said that they're estimating that students at the University of Colorado would test 50% of them would test positive for COVID now and I said cool <laughs> she said no that isn't cool and I said well it is if that means that they're all going to be immune now. I mean, we've got to have some kind of immunity, and if we can't develop immunity, then we're all just going to die. <laughs> so, either it's cool, or we're all going to die. And I don't think we're all going to die. So I looked up to see, okay, so what's the hospitalization rate in Boulder these days? And I couldn't see any evidence. I didn't see any headlines saying that people were lying in the streets dying in Boulder. So, it doesn't seem to be quite as big a deal. But one of the things we've done as we've progressed through the COVID pandemic is we keep shifting the goalposts. 
So the first, the first when it first came out, that we had this novel virus that is going to be spreading around the world. The first thing was that nobody had an immunity because it was a new virus. So one of my colleagues posted something like that. And I said, so what does that mean? Nobody has immunity to anything until they've experienced it. So it's like the flu virus that comes out every year. They keep telling us we gotta go get vaccinated because we aren't immune to it, right? So what's the difference? And he said, well, the difference this time is nobody's got any immunity. Well, turns out I think the difference probably is that when a new flu virus comes out, it's a mutation of something we've probably been exposed to in the past, or a number of us have. And therefore, we might have some immunity based on that previous exposure. In other words, it might be kind of like this analogy comes to mind. If you're a boxer and you've boxed a lot of different people, even though a new opponent may be different, you know the tactics from all the previous opponents that you fought. And actually, as more I think about it, that's not too bad an analogy. Because our immune system works by fighting organisms or bacteria, viruses, or whatever these antigens we call them that enter the body and try to do us harm. And it reacts by forming antibodies and killing the virus if the virus is alive. <laughs> There's some debate about whether viruses are actually alive, but whatever it is, it neutralizes or weakens the virus so that we can eliminate it and are killed by it. So the immune system works similarly to anything where we're trying to adapt. In a boxer, in a boxing situation, you're learning to adapt to your opponent so that you can win. Come up with different boxing moves. I don't know very much about boxing, so I should probably leave that analogy alone and move on. But the key to this is we have to develop an immunity. And if we can't develop an immunity, then there's no hope. And some may argue, well, what about a vaccine? Well, a vaccine helps you develop an immunity. So if you can't develop an immunity, there can't be a vaccine. So it's as simple as that. <laughs> so if you're pointing to people that have gotten it two or three times, and by the way, I had a patient once that told me he'd had the measles three times. And we claim there's a vaccine for that. So just because you can find one person that didn't develop an immunity doesn't mean that overall we can't do it. So we have to be careful about these one-person uh, falsification arguments. In fact, in healthcare, everything's based on some kind of uh, probability system. So we're constantly comparing one group against another. I think I've talked about falsification in an earlier episode, but I'll go over it again. Falsification was the idea by philosopher of science Karl Popper that science never proves anything to be true because something could always change in the future, so we never know with complete certainty that something's true. So we might have evidence tomorrow 
that what we consider to be true today is turns out not to be true. Stephen Hawking in his book, the, A Brief History of Time, talked about Popper and this idea of falsification. And Hawking used the idea of the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. And he said, we accept that as true, recognizing that if it ever rises in the west and sets in the east, then it's falsified our premise and we know all that isn't true all the time. So even in science, we have this probability idea. And what we do in healthcare is we look at one group versus another group and the null hypothesis, the hypothesis we're trying to falsify is that there's no difference between the groups. So blood pressure is a good example. In my book, Dupam and Dopam, I use blood pressure as an example. And I had a study that I think was published in Lancet, if I remember right. And actually, it looked at diastolic blood pressure. So this was back in the 90s. And the idea was that maybe diastolic blood pressure, the lower number, was key to heart disease, heart attacks, and strokes. And sure enough, they were able to show that people with the highest diastolic blood pressure were more likely to have heart events and strokes than those with the lowest diastolic. However, if you looked at the actual numbers, it wasn't that you could just find one person with a high diastolic that didn't have a stroke or heart disease. That wasn't it at all. First of all, you have to look at the groups that they actually tested. And this particular publication, the article, was a meta-analysis. And what they'd done was looked at several different studies and put them together for this meta-analysis. Meta is a larger analysis. And what they'd done was looked at middle-aged men. So the middle-aged men are the most likely to have a stroke or heart problem. So they chose these groups and put them together, and they followed them for 10 years, was the average. So over 10 years, among those most likely to have heart failure or a stroke, what they looked at was, okay, now if you had high diastolic versus low diastolic, and they grouped them into every 10, uh, well, we measure blood pressure in millimeters of mercury, so every 10 groups are like from 70 to 80, that would be one group. 80 to 90 would be another group. You get the idea, they grouped them into 10, 10 millimeters of mercury. Anyway, the top group was, I don't remember, it was like 15 times or five times, depending on whether you're looking at stroke or heart disease. Much, much higher risk. In other words, your risk of having a stroke would be five or 15 times, whichever it was or heart disease was five or 15 times, whichever number that happened to be. Your risk was much higher if you had a very high diastolic than if you had a low diastolic blood pressure. However, if you just looked at the numbers, 95% of the men most likely to have a heart condition or a stroke, 95% of them had neither over this 10 year period, even if they had the highest diastolic. And the point I made in Dupam and Dopam was that if we can convince people 
100% of the people who are at risk to take a medication when only 95% when 95 of them aren't going to have the problem, think how we've increased the sales of medications. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's the greatest marketing tactic in the world. Convince people that they have a problem that they really don't have and get them to take medication for it. Now, in defense of medicine, the problem is some of those people really will have the problem, but they haven't figured out which ones. So in a previous episode, I think I talked about, uh, if I hadn't, again, I'll, I'll get you up to date, but we can have causes of an effect, or you can have causes that where you have to have multiple causes to have the effect. And we can talk about necessary and sufficient conditions. So if a cause is necessary, it must be present in order to get a certain effect. So if high blood pressure was necessary to have stroke or heart disease, then everybody with low blood pressure, out of the people with low blood pressure, nobody would ever have a stroke or heart disease. Well, that's not true. It's certainly a lower number, but people with low blood pressure do have, some of them do have stroke and heart disease. Now, so it's not necessary. Now, is it sufficient? Now, sufficiency means if we have a necessary cause, then if it's sufficient, we will get the effect. Nothing else is involved. So what we were seeing in the case of diastolic blood pressure, when 95% of the men who had high diastolic blood pressure did not have stroke or heart conditions, then for that 95%, it shows that it wasn't sufficient. So perhaps it's not sufficient for the 5% either. Perhaps there's some other factor. And when you have some effects that require multiple causes in my course, I talk about the conditions that must be necessary in order to have fire. And what are the conditions? Well, you have to have some kind of fuel to ignite. You have to have oxygen. And you have to have some kind of source of ignition to start the fire. And if any one of those is missing, you can't have fire. So those are examples of necessary and sufficient conditions. Each one of them is necessary but none of them alone is sufficient in order to have fire. So it gets back to accurate thinking, which is where we started out. So when we're thinking accurately about COVID, I got off into COVID. When we started out, we said, well, we've got this novel virus that none of us has an immunity to. So they were predicting that the possibility of pretty high mortality. So we were gonna have two to four percent. I think we were, we were, some were predicting as high as two to four percent. Well, that doesn't seem like very much. If 98% of us would get well, I mean, your odds are pretty good, right? Well, the problem is, again, when you look at the actual numbers, 2% of our entire population in America, that's well, let's just round it up to 400 million. So what's 2% of 400 million? 80, 
What is 2% of 400 million? 2% of 400 is 8? So it would be 8 million people dying? If I did the numbers in my head right? Anyway, it's a lot of people. And we're failing to look at the small percentage, but such a large number. So one of the things I see in people that are against the wearing masks and all that, it's only 2% of people. Well, 2% of a large number is still a large number. <laughs> and that's what we were just talking about. But as it turns out, maybe the fatality rate isn't quite that high. And I think what we were talking about with the flu is like 0.1 or not 2 to 4%, but 0.1%. And we may be finding out that it's more like, I don't remember what the current statistics are, but the point is it's not as fatal as what was first believed. And the arguments made, well, we had to act the way we did because we didn't know. And I agree. However, as we've moved along, we're getting more and more data. Now what we have to do is look at the current data. That's the same thing with the masks. When we first were told about masks, it looked like the science was saying, well, the masks weren't necessary unless you're really exposed. And that's still going to make sense, I think. Unless you're in an area where they're where the virus is, you're not going to be helped by a mask. Problem is, we don't know when we're in that area. And the more research that came out, it's looking like maybe masks are helpful. Now, masks are not the end of the story. Just because you're wearing a mask, you still may be infected or you still may pass the infection. But you're reducing your odds of transmission or either way. So it doesn't reduce the odds to zero, but it reduces them by some factor. And the better the mask, the better it reduces that chance. However, as we've gone along here, what initially we said, well, we, what we were trying to do was flatten the curve so we didn't overwhelm the hospitals and the morgues. And in some cases, it sounds like maybe in New York, we weren't able to do that. And in some cases, many places, it sounds like we have done that. And it seems like we've been fairly successful, at least from my standpoint, and you know, I'm not close to it at all, but, and I don't really follow it anymore. But from what I'm hearing, it sounds like for the most part, we've been able to flatten the curve. Now, flattening the curve didn't mean that we're eliminating the virus. Some teams seem to think that that's what would have happened. If everybody just worn their mask, we would have eliminated it. Well, that was never the original idea. The original idea was that everybody was eventually going to get it because that's how we get our immunity. Or enough would get it to develop herd immunity. And the herd immunity percentage is based on how contagious the virus is. So there's actually a formula for determining how what percentage of the population must be immune in order to reduce the risk of transmission of the infection. 
and it's the formula is based on how many people one person is likely to transmit an infection to. So in the early stages, they were predicting that eight, one person might transmit the virus to four people. And if that was true, it's something like 75% of the population would have to be immune to slow that kind of spread. However, I think now they're saying that one person might only infect one or two people. And that brings down that transmission, or the percentage of people that have to be immunized down to something like 25%. Anyway, we've changed the goalposts. Now we're not just trying to flatten the curve, thinking that everybody's eventually going to become immune or we're going to reach herd immunity. We've switched to now we're trying to stop or slow the number of cases that are coming about. So we're tracking cases, we're, and we're not tracking how ill somebody is, we're just tracking whether or not they've been infected. Well, that's way changing the goalposts. And part of this gets down to, I think, the definition of disease. And if you look at what the definition of disease is, you usually have signs and symptoms that the patient is going through, and then and that's the definition of the disease. And then you look at what is the cause of the disease, and the cause of the disease is often the antigen, whether it's a bacteria or a virus, and the disease is actually the process of the animal, in our case it's humans, responding to the virus or, ant or, or bacteria, the antigen. So disease is the process. Disease is not the virus or the bacteria. That's one of the causes, and it's not necessary and sufficient. And the reason you know it's not necessary and sufficient, you can just look at the reports of COVID. Many people are testing positive, and yet they never had the disease. They never knew they were sick. So they never had the disease. And yet we see reports, well, they had the disease because they tested positive. Well, what they're doing is mixing up what the definition of disease is. Disease is not the organism. The organism is not a disease. Those aren't equivalent. If you get sick from the organism, then you have the disease. But the organism is not the disease. And that's why my wife and I had such different responses to this idea that students at the University of Colorado, maybe 50% of them would test positive. Well, yeah, so? Are any of them sick? That's what I wanna know. So I tried to look it up and I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't find any information online that showed that there was an increase of hospitalizations or that people were dying in the streets in the University of Colorado because they were infected with COVID. So it really gets back, I think, to accurate thinking. And my point with COVID is they shifted the goalposts and those that don't think accurately and just follow along are letting their minds be led by people who are trying to keep this in the news and make a big deal out of something and not saying that it's not a big deal, but let's, let's at least be consistent in how we're tracking this and what our goals are. And if our goals are to have immunity, well then first thing we gotta do is 
establish can immunity even happen and then if it can happen and a lot of people can develop immunity just by being exposed and they really aren't going to be too sick then people that are in colleges as a good example if most of them really don't even notice that they've got the virus and yet they develop an immunity then that's the perfect way to develop a herd immunity and if we can spread what you want what we want to do is get that immunity through people who have the least likelihood of developing illness or the disease so that they can be the herd that's immune and that's why when somebody like me hears hey there's 50 percent of the people are infected well if they're not even sick that's cool <laughs> that's super cool <laughs> if they are sick then it's a different situation but we have to be careful on how these things are reported all right that's the end of the morning drive thanks for listening i hope you got something out of this and and try to think accurately really look at your data think about what words really mean and i think you'll find that your outlook may improve <laughs> and at least and at least it'll be based on truth all right this is robert f walter signing off thanks again for listening <laughs>